Baking through a 65 degree day sounds ridiculous, but Monash University has concluded it's a future reality for pockets of Sydney. Coinciding with hotter days, a new report on the heat island effect in our capital cities shows tree cover in decline. We respectfully acknowledge that Hypecast is recorded on traditional Aboriginal lands, which have been sustained for thousands of years. We honour their ongoing connection to these lands and seek to respectfully acknowledge the traditional custodians. Climate change is leading to higher average temperatures and an increase in the number of extreme heat days above 35 degrees. With concrete, dark roofs and roads soaking up the heat, our cities are getting hotter, posing a significant health risk for the most vulnerable in our community. Researchers have predicted that urban areas particularly affected, such as Western Sydney, will be too hot to live in in a matter of decades. Spatial inequality is exacerbating the issue with some suburbs feeling like ovens, whilst those only a few kilometres away with higher levels of tree canopy close to evaporative water bodies can be drastically cooler. Leading researchers and practitioners are developing tools to mitigate the urban heat island effect and adapt to the effects of climate change in our cities. The City of Melbourne's Green Infrastructure Tool, Green Factor Tool, is one of them that we'll be discussing in this episode. Today I sit down with Dr Judy Bush, lecturer in urban planning at the University of Melbourne, Sean Tompkins, sustainability consultant, and Gavin Ashley, Better Cities and Regions lead at Hip Fear Height, to discuss how our cities and regions can best address the urban heat island effect. What is the urban heat island effect and how does it impact Australian cities? And regions. Thanks, Sean. So the urban heat island effect is where urban areas are hotter than their surrounding rural areas, and it's caused by the removal of vegetation, because vegetation is cooling, and it's also caused by the use of building materials, so materials that absorb heat. That includes road surfaces and buildings, concrete, and Exacerbating that, of course, is the use of machinery. So machinery also emits heat, so that means that urban areas are are hotter. And that's the urban heat island effect. Of course, the urban heat island effect can add two or three degrees, up to 10 degrees sometimes, to urban areas. That might be okay on a winter day, but during summer, if we have, for example, a heat wave, then that additional two to 10 degrees from the urban heat island effect can make urban areas unbearable. Just to, just to add a point to that, Judy, I think there's the, one of the really interesting things about the way the urban heat island effect us, affects us is the difference between daytime and nighttime, in particular how that nighttime recovery that people usually get even on the extreme heat days is, is no longer happening to the same same extent? So there's, there's two aspects to that. One aspect is that researchers have found that in terms of people dealing with heat waves from a health perspective, it can be really crucial for their recovery to have uh, nighttime cooling off. So, so when people are really, when their health is really seriously affected by heat waves, it's usually because nighttime temperatures aren't dropping enough for them to cool off. And Gav, as you say, the the urban heat island effect 
we've got sort of two different aspects to it. The, the daytime urban heat island effect is mostly experienced as direct solar radiation. So sun hitting you on the head, <laughs> making you feel hot. And so shade is really important to address the, the daytime effects. But then at night, what happens with the urban heat island effect is that the dense, dark building materials, including road surfaces that have absorbed heat during the day, then release it overnight. And so you don't get that drop in, in urban temperatures at night when you have the urban heat island effect operating. So again, shading road surfaces, for example, means that less heat will be absorbed by those road surfaces to then have to be released at night. So that's important. I'd be keen to sort of have a bit of a chat about those health impacts in a bit more detail, I think. We're all really aware of the physical impacts of urban heat, including one of the starkest examples for me is if you look back to the heat wave that was associated with the 2009 bushfires, you had a number of deaths directly related to the bushfire in the hundreds and the number of deaths related to the actual extreme heat around that in the 300s. And so we need to put in perspective those flow-on impacts and probably just recognise also that it's not only physical health. I know from work previously done, organisations like Homes Vic and Department of Health are acutely aware of the spikes that we get in domestic violence through heat waves and that overnight recovery that Judy was talking about before is kind of is really feeding those issues. The ability of housing to protect through better thermal performance from those extreme heat nights in particular is mm. crucial. Some great points Gav because certainly I used to work at Moreland Energy Foundation. I remember once after one of the heat waves a young mum walking into our office in desperation saying our apartment is like a hot box my baby's room has no outdoor windows I'm desperate I can't live here you know so you're right that heat can be very intensely stressful and good buildings with good thermal performance can protect us from heat but crap buildings can absolutely exacerbate the heat impacts and that's a really serious issue yeah Yeah. and there's a real inequity between different areas of melbourne even in in with respect to how bad it is you when you look at the data you generally see the red bits of an urban heat map right under the red bits of socio-economic disadvantage and i think if you have a look at the the northwest, for example, it's hotter, canopy covers under 10%, and there's reasons for that. The old, the the area was grassland; it wasn't forest. But then you look at that in contrast to the southeast, with more affluence and more trees, and probably better quality housing, and you exacerbate that differential. And then on top of that, in terms of the equities, homelessness and how it can impact them they have no house at all to find refuge and it's another important outcome that we should be talking about is how the streetscape keeps everyone safe mm. and how we can how we can achieve that 
It's interesting, isn't it, when you think about it in that sort of way. Yes, for example, in Melbourne, the the northern and western areas being developed on what was native grassland, so they have less tree cover now and the soils are heavy, so they're harder for trees to actually grow in. But when we think about development processes and providing infrastructure and services to new housing, we've got to be thinking about, well, how can we create tree cover in these areas and there's certainly increasing horticultural knowledge of how to create structural soils that can support healthy tree growth so even though we've got heavy clay soils in the north and west of Melbourne we still actually know how we could go about helping trees to establish in those areas and you know, we've got to be looking at tree canopy cover and heat mitigation as part of our thinking about how to create new housing areas and new areas of the city. It's not just the the stormwater drains or the roads or the NBN connection. No, that's dead dead right. And it was really good to see the Victorian Planning Authority released precinct structure planning guidelines in draft form last year. And the document isn't heavy with targets, but one of the key targets is there is a target of 30% of canopy cover for new growth area communities. So that, as I understand it, the developers are all pushing back on that, that number. So hopefully they hold steady, but having it in there as something to work towards, and we know that sort of 30 to 40% threshold is where you sort of start to get that safety safety back is kind of critical probably just to extend your point though judy tree canopy is half of it but it's not all that can be done in terms of community building for improved urban heat outcomes one of the things that's come through the research in the last couple of years is just the ability to daylight water and irrigate more heavily around extreme heat and if you if you have a look at the urban heat maps and you look at an at an irrigated oval versus a an open space asset that is unirrigated and maybe is browned off a bit over summer, the differential is quite stark. And then there's the surfaces, the work that you've done, Sean, for City of Kingston around colours and the thermal mass. Permeability and things like that. So for the listeners, when we're talking about the, the irrigation, the benefit there is this process of evapotranspiration, is it where the moisture that is in soil, vegetation, trees, water bodies, is being extracted and pulled through the air into the atmosphere and that's cooling the ambient temperature. That's right. Yeah. And so... There's really two things that trees and vegetation do. One is that they provide shade, so they're like big green umbrellas that stop the sun hitting your head or the the road surface or whatever. And the other way that they cool is evapotranspiration, exactly as you say. So it's actually really important to ensure that that our landscapes, our street trees are well watered, our urban landscapes are well watered for them to really maximise their cooling benefits. So in addition to increasing the canopy cover and the vegetation and the passive irrigation, what else can cities do to mitigate and adapt to the urban heat island effect? I think there's a few other strategies that sit in that planning policy space. We um, were lucky enough to be taken through Cape Patterson, the residential village down at the Cape in, in Bass Coast. 
And one of the things that was stark there compared with that sort of subdivision versus, say, the way subdivision is traditionally delivered in our growth areas is the size of the building footprint in proportion to a lot. What we've actually seen over the last 30 years is the lot, the average lot size significantly decline in growth areas and that has a plus for density but they're still building predominantly um, single level dwellings and what that means is it pushes the footprint of those buildings out to you know 75 percent of the lot leaves very little space for landscaping and it means that if they get the materials wrong on those horizontal services that are on the roof then you're really adding to uh, urban heat so the idea that you can sort of slightly contract from the 250 square meters of four by two four by two houses that we probably don't need to a more contracted built form which is maybe built over two levels with more outdoor space but not reduce the size of the lot does two things you get the surface balance right and you also allow for canopy trees to be aided in front or backyards which provide further protection for the community. You've raised some really great points there Gav and I think it highlights the the way that urbanisation is progressing in places like Melbourne you know we talk about the leafy eastern suburbs for example that's a that's something that Melburnians frequently say the leafy eastern suburbs and yet we're actually seeing tree canopy decreasing significantly in these areas and it's not tree canopy in streets and public parks it's the tree canopy in the privately owned land and it's because not only densification so not only multi-unit development but also small houses with big gardens being flattened and replaced with big houses with tiny gardens. And so the leafy eastern suburbs are at risk of becoming the desert eastern suburbs if we don't start actually valuing trees and outdoor landscape, vegetation spaces on private realm as well. There's a there's a massive gap there where if you're the owner of a residential property, the only trees that get protection on your property are either significant trees or specific native native vegetation if that's what the planning rules for that location say and that's not very many in the scheme of a bunch of deciduous trees for example that are sitting in backyards and doing actually doing that job of letting winter light in and protecting homes and outdoor areas from the summer sun. They're doing a good job, but there's nothing really there in the vast majority of cases that actually protects that tree being removed. So whilst that's happening, that's a decline. We're getting densification through, which has a whole bunch of other benefits for land use, transport integration and all that sort of stuff. Don't get me wrong, that has a, a massive role, but it's something that local government is now looking to as the next cab off the rack. They've got in most cases an urban heat mitigation plan or an urban forest strategy most of the councils in metropolitan melbourne have got those strategies in place but the predominant policy direction there is around what you can do on the land that they control public realm or open space etc so the harder stuff and it's 70 percent of our cities is actually either need to protect or you need to use that once in a sort of generation 
changeover of the built form and get that absolutely right. And that the work that we did with the City of Melbourne in developing the Green Factor tool, that was the, the evidence base behind the need for that work to be done. Just to add to your point, it's not just in the leafy east, I'm in a, a Northcote and I think I'm the only house in the street that has an actual backyard and hasn't built to the rear boundary. When we talk about it being the next cab off the rank, what can council do? If it, you've got high property value and land values and property yield. Is it about educating people on the value that they have in their backyard or is there just additional tree controls or how do we tackle this on the private lot? It's a tricky one. I think policy mechanisms need to look at both carrots and sticks to use a cliche. So it's not just about regulation. It's not just about you can do this and you can't do this. One of the limitations of regulation is that you have to enforce it and you have to enforce it before the damage happens. So I I think there's a really strong role for encouragement and incentives and shifting people's views about, for example, the public benefits of a private tree and so acknowledging and providing incentives and encouragement to private tree owners that they're actually providing this amazing public benefit. Let's reward them for it, let's acknowledge it, let's see how we can support them so that they retain that tree, that garden. I think there's an important role there as well as looking at development processes and how we can ensure that green is included in development plans and so on, which is indeed what the green factor tool that you mentioned focuses on. There's a really interesting tension as well with how mid-rise development is viewed in the suburbs. The difference between a four and six storey building, for example, on a, say it's a seven or eight hundred metre lot with good transport access. If you can condense the ground floor building footprint and the incentive you're talking about, Judy, is you can have your couple of extra stories to get your city views, but what you need to do is landscape the hell out of the the 20 the 15 or 20 percent of the ground level non-building footprint in order that we manage this issue on this lot developers will maximize the yield on a lot as that process develops but if we've got good well-balanced incentives then i think there's a role there for that as well as we're all talking i'm thinking about conversations that i've had with Aboriginal people and and traditional owners and custodianship to country and responsibility to each other. And I think that we all have a lot to learn from that knowledge, those approaches to living together in shared environments and understanding that that tree that we've got in our backyard, for example, even if we're not going through the development process, how can we all collectively encourage and ensure that the trees that people do currently have in their backyards are retained? Because of the way we see land and particularly private land and private land ownership and It is amazing talking to Aboriginal people about their aspirations for country and and their despair at seeing the way that 
land ownership carves up country and erodes the ability for custodianship and care of country. Nonetheless, that aspiration continues strongly. You've just reminded me of, a, of another, it's a barrier, but there are solutions. What you see happening between, say, that private public interface on in, in say, our communities, those interfaces are very well marked. They're usually marked in the usual design and response is a front fence that says, that's yours, this is mine. If they disappear... If though, and if in communities, usually townhouse communities, where that front couple of metres of a property before you hit the front door is managed by an owner's corporation or it's designed to be more seamless, then you can actually get the ability to get green infrastructure in there is actually increased straight away. But there's this little thing that happens when you hand over public land to local government where they only have fixed operations and maintenance budgets. So they need to make sure that whatever's handed over is maintainable with the crew that they've got out doing the work. So you get this massive intent through the design stage, which is then a constraint for operate as that land is handed over to local government. So I think there's better ways to work through that in terms of ownership and governance structures around those front setbacks of properties. You've raised a couple of really interesting points, Gav. I had a student who did a project looking at the sort of common shared land in multi-unit developments. And his idea was exactly, he analysed areas in Melbourne to see if there was more tree cover proportionally on shared multi-unit developments, partly because there would be body corporate maintenance of those shared garden spaces and partly because you're grouping the open space so there's potentially uh, a greater opportunity greater space for a tree so I think that's a, a really interesting aspect I think also we have our front fences that are the edge of our private land and then over there is public land but there's also some fuzzy land ownership maintenance boundaries in terms of nature strips. Nature strips is where people are expected to maintain public land out the front of their own houses. It's not their land, but they're expected to maintain it. So we actually do, we've started playing around with land ownership and land management processes. It almost feels guerrilla style and that's super fun but sometimes it can lead to tears if a council comes past and says we love the intent but you can't do that here vegetables but there's lead in the soil those it's true and out the front of my place on our nature strip we got permission from council to plant kangaroo grass which is the you know, native grass of the western basalt plains of Melbourne. So we've been lovingly tending it for the time that we've been living in this house. And it looks amazing, but nature strips can be a bit of a misnomer because it's actually, to be honest, a utility strip as much as it is a nature strip. And it's been dug up multiple times for underground services, which is so just heartbreaking seeing your native grass that you've been looking after Mm. dug up for underground power nbn you know whatever 
And just on the removal of the front fence, it kind of touches on you were talking about the Cape earlier and we went down there the other week and that was a point that we all made was the removal of the front fence and that vegetation bleeds out onto the street a whole lot easier. And these new fences that are on the townhouses that we see around here are usually concrete, brick. They've got a render, dark colour render often. So they're also absorbing that heat when we... To bring it back to the heat island impact is someone walking down the street, when you walk past a brick wall that's up to the footpath, you can kind of already feel that radiate. So when you remove that immediate heat impact, then you've got a higher opportunity for vegetation. So it's a win-win, really. Interestingly, Sean, I think you're raising other interesting perspectives in terms of how we design landscapes too, what materials we use. So... I know the Australian Institute of Landscape Architects has been looking at this tool called the Climate Positive Tool, which looks at embodied energy and operational energy associated with the landscape design. So partly, what sort of materials are you using and what's the greenhouse gas emissions associated with the manufacture of those materials, but also what sort of landscapes are you creating in terms of maintenance requirements? Are they going to require a lot of, for example, machinery to maintain them? Do you need to mow crazy lawns all over the place? That sort of stuff. So I think it's really it's interesting to actually think about why are we using those materials in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. Do we need to have a rendered brick fence the answer is almost always no. That's absolutely right. And the tendency is if it's a busy road, you get people want the 1.7 and 1.8 rather than the one that you can lean on and have a conversation with someone in the street. So there's social barriers created by that as well. It's a good point that you need to think about context. So maybe on a busy road, a sound absorbing barrier is important But on a little side street, probably not so much. I've been watching development that's happening in a street round the corner from me and they've just put in a brick fence on the new development and I've noticed that they're just putting in the um, strips to now render this brick fence. So they're doing exactly what you said. And it's pretty unnecessary because it's a cute little side street we've talked a little bit about maybe what state gov can do what local gov could do but the point i want to make is that the rules for uh single dwellings across victoria what the built form outcome is really driven by the national construction code and there's ongoing policy development in that area around moving from a six-star NatHERS to a seven-star NatHERS, so that's a scale that relates to the thermal performance. But just even if you jump into the engine that runs that software, you start to see some, some nuances that produce poor results. So one of the things that happens in Victoria is there's a, a very minor improvement in the outcome through that software if you choose a dark tiled roof over a, a light coloured colour bond. So you get a very minor improvement in your overall thermal performance rating. And that's because still, even though the weather is warming in Victoria and all all over the world, we're still a predominantly heating climate. 
So 75%, 25%, probably in a few years, it'll be more like 70, 30. But that little nuance, sometimes the difference between going for that, when you put that very, very minor individual benefit against the major public benefit that could be created if if there's a subdivision full of light-coloured colour bond homes, then that public benefit far outweighs the very minute individual private benefits. But we've got policy that we really can't argue with pushing us in the total, total opposite direction. In the development of the Green Factor tool, that's part of the, the back end. That Green Factor tool is looking at the overarching policy priorities of the City of Melbourne and then prioritising mitigation of those functions using vegetation. So the City of Melbourne's priorities related to urban heat mitigation and habitat for biodiversity. And so we then set the tool mechanism so that it prioritise delivery of those functions through greening. So what sits at the base of the policy priorities that drive the settings of the design tools that we use are really important to, to consider. With those that aren't across the Green Factor tool that are University of Melbourne Hippie Hype and little sketches built in collaboration with the, the City of Melbourne, it's a tool that benchmarks uh, the ecosystem uh, services provided by green infrastructure on private land and it does that across seven ecosystem services. The, the two that Judy has mentioned, provisioning services that are provided by green infrastructure. But what I love about the, the approach the City of Melbourne took is that it's also valuing all the other stuff that you get from green <coughs> infrastructure. You don't just get habitat and through improved biodiversity and urban heat mitigation. You get recreational benefit. People feel physically better when they see vegetation if you're in a hospital room your health outcomes and they've done business cases on this their ability to turn over patient improvement to a point where that person can be released compensates for an improved sighting of that hospital next to green space so if you can see it you're going to get better quicker and you're going to get all this other benefit at the same time. I think we all bought extra indoor plants over 2020 while we're in lockdown, so we can agree with that, the benefits of additional vegetation. But the tool also, there was stormwater was another benefit. There's so many multiple benefits with vegetation. It's hard to value it, but it has so many values. The way the tool was developed is Judy ran a a literature review and created a research evidence base for the proportional impact of different sorts of green infrastructure on that range of seven ecosystem services. But there was stuff that we left out because, for example, the carbon sequestration benefit, because it was at the lot scale, Despite that being a benefit, it's had a sort of a limited impact at the lot scale. So seven isn't the final number. There's air pollution, there's improvement, there's carbon sequestration, all of which are, are benefits. I think that points to, to canny policy making on the part of City of Melbourne. So they wanted to create a tool that, that would get through the 
rigour of scrutiny from a range of different urban environment stakeholders. And so they only, through a peer review process, only the functions that can be delivered at lot scale and that there's really strong evidence for that and they were the functions that were included. There's a whole lot of other functions. For example, AILA, Australian Institute of Landscape Architects, they really highlight the carbon sequestration function of urban landscapes. And yes, yeah, as, as we all agree, that's really super important. But it wasn't included in the tool because we didn't want that to be argued with about by developers going, come on, one tree in my lot, don't make me do it. We wanted to say the evidence base is there and here it is. And so this is what we expect you to do mm. as part of your development. And more and more, what's lovely and kind of positive is that more stakeholders in that development process are seeing the value in green infrastructure. There's a great study in Perth that says, if you like, the compare and contrast with the values of a particular street with very similar built form, but a bigger investment in green infrastructure on private property and in the street, and values are 10% higher putting aside just for a moment the affordability issue that that creates with equity everyone should have access there's a real economic benefit that's sitting behind that there's a study which is now probably nine or ten years old that was commissioned by the city of melbourne that estimated the net present value loss of 300 million dollars from the urban urban heat island effect for the municipality which is pretty big numbers it's interesting too, isn't it? We can look at some of the front-runner developers who are actually prioritising landscapes, green infrastructure, that sort of stuff in the construction of their developments. So you guys talked about going to see Kate Patterson development and there are a number of other developers who prioritising green infrastructure, whether it's because they see... Uh, brand value in it and a reputation value in it or whether it's because they actually also are committed to hitting the Paris target for greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. I think more and more people within our society actually seeing the importance of action on climate change and that includes mitigation, reducing greenhouse gas emissions and it includes adaptation dealing with the impacts and we're increasingly seeing people developers business owners large organizations small organizations saying we can't wait for governments to negotiate our way through this we are going to take action ourselves so being able to highlight the work of those front runners i think is also really important to inspire further action as well as to normalise that sort of action. Absolutely Judy. I think your work in sort of looking at the the four pillars of action that can take really highlights that role for demonstration and that if you combine demonstration with regulation and incentive then when you provide an incentive you reduce the risk for someone taking up that incentive by being able to point to somewhere that's done it done it well 
and we're we're getting there it's slower than everybody would like but there's now more ability to point around built projects that are both in private realm and in in the work that local government and state government does on public land there's more to point to that provides that demonstration value and Judy, you raised a good point earlier when we were talking about the streetscapes and the reserves on the side of roads that they're for utilities. And we talk about space under utilities and the nexus between that and providing increased vegetation, the removal of gas in new subdivisions and the space that that can create for additional trees was a point that was raised when we were working on the sustainable subdivision framework, which was it's an another tool like the green factor tool in a sense where it's trying to entice and create more sustainable outcomes so for the listeners similar to the esd for housing it kind of takes a step back and it's trying to set the foundations for new communities and subdivisions so there's seven categories and one's urban heat there is ecology as well but how how important is that we've just had a there's a new report about gas in the home being bad for health it also stops the provision of increased vegetation these are the conversations that we should be having when we're trying to push for urban heat increased vegetation healthier communities when we're thinking about trees in the urban landscape and creating space for them often we think about the above ground context but Yes, indeed, trees do have roots and and require that below-ground space as well. And it is interesting listening to utilities providers, infrastructure providers, and sometimes people talk about having shared utility pits and so on, but actually infrastructure providers don't want to have to share access and and underground channels and so on so being able to streamline what we're providing to housing is really important particularly because in new developments where usually we have underground power so if we don't have to provide underground gas as well then that does create more space for tree development And indeed, why are we piping a fossil fuel into new houses when we don't need to? It raises a really good point, and it's probably a whole other other podcast. But that contested space that's in streets, I ran a workshop with one of our clients yesterday around how you design streetscapes to maximise a wide variety of sustainable outcomes within them. And... Landscape architect, service service engineer, transport engineer, sustainability, architecture, urban design, develop in the room. And the list of things that a street has to do, perform the transport function, accommodate street furniture, footpaths, bike parks, on-street parking. It's a lot, right? And you've got to fit all that in to perhaps a 16-metre road reserve. So to Sean's point, getting smart with your services and making sure that they don't create an issue for soil volumes for for trees and that bleeding of landscape into the private realm and seeing a bit more of a seamless transition opens that up and suddenly you've got space to do the things that reduce urban heat. Exactly. I think out of the 10 people, everyone drew trees on their 
on their outcomes. Like we had all the stakeholders draw the streetscapes that they wanted and everyone drew healthy, happy trees. Just the ability to align that with all the other objectives is kind of, is the challenge. But if that's multidisciplinary and it's at the start of a process, then it's a development process tweak that might not be a policy thing, but it might be sort of a practice thing that we can be doing more of as well. It's great to hear they wanted trees. It's yeah. really great. When you said that, I, I had an image of the tree outside my house on the street. When I pull down the blind at night, I always look out to see if the tawny frog mouth is sitting in the tree, and sometimes I see it and sometimes I don't. You know, so trees are important for us. They're also super important for urban biodiversity. We haven't talked a lot about biodiversity today, but cities are really important for biodiversity and and trees provide their habitat. It just goes to that point of getting... You talk about something that can provide multiple benefits. That's what it is. And I think there's a further lesson there for new communities that if you can... (coughs) get those assets in as early as possible and you can push how mature they are when they go in then it's not 25 years before that community is mature and getting the benefit it's sooner than that they get that protection closer to when they move in thank you judy and gavin for joining us today having a chat about urban heat and planting more trees to mitigate thanks sean good to be here Thanks. It's been very fun to talk about trees and urban vegetation and biodiversity. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hypecast. If you're listening in on Apple Podcasts, please subscribe and take a moment to leave a review.